Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Curious Canadian History. I'm your host... David Boris. New France was a colony perpetually at war. Despite the fact that it often resembled more of a military garrison than a colony, it still had within its boundaries communities that were attempting to lead normal lives. Within these communities, a complex system of relationships existed between the commoners, the elites, the church, long-established families, new immigrants, and of course, the French military, which was a constant presence. Within this social milieu was a very real effort to impose law and order upon both the urban and rural space. Yet, enforcing law and order was complicated and incorporated different elements of the social hierarchy who needed to cooperate in order to effectively carry out their task. As well, with the colony constantly threatened with war, the military, and in turn the local militia, ended up playing leading roles in policing the colony. This is Season 7, Episode 17, A Thankless Task, Policing in New France. Today's book recommendation is titled People, State, and War Under the French Regime in Canada. The author is Louise Deschamps, and the publisher is McGill Queen's Press. This book was published in 2021. Covering a period that runs from the founding of the colony in the early 17th century to the conquest of 1760, people, state, and war under the French regime in Canada is a study of colonial warriors and warfare that examines the exercise of state military power and its effects on ordinary people with empathy and sensitivity to the social dimensions of life and a piercing insight into the operations of power. Duchenne portrays the colonial condition with its rightful dose of danger and ambiguity. Her work underlines the severe toll that warfare takes on the individual and on society, and the persistent deprivation, disorder, fear, and death that come with conflict. 
Now, before we dive into the state of policing in New France in the 17th and 18th centuries, and I say policing using air quotes, we need to understand a bit about the governance structure of the colony itself. So let's back up to 1663, when New France was officially made a royal colony of the crown of France. With this declaration by King Louis XIV, a more formal system of government was imposed on the colony, similar to other colonies throughout the French Empire at the time. At the top of the government hierarchy was the governor general. He was based out of Quebec City, and he was both responsible for the military and the crown's representative in the colony. Now, the second most powerful person in the colony was the intendant. While the governor general was the nominal head of the colony and in charge of the military, the intendant was responsible for the colony's finances, which included policing, as well as the justice system. The first governor general of New France was Augustin de Safre de Messy, and the first intendant was Jean Talon. Now, the governor general and the intendant did not just rule as a two-headed administration. They both sat on the Sovereign Council. This council, whose name was changed in 1703 to the Superior Council, was made up of nine members, including the governor general, the intendant, the bishop of New France, along with six other councillors appointed at first by the governor general and later by the king himself. While the governor-general and intendant wielded exceptionally significant powers over the colony, the Superior Council, I will refer to it as its later name, acted as a policy-making body for the governance of the colony, as well as being the final court of appeals for any legal matters, effectively the Supreme Court of the Colony of New France. Nonetheless, it's important to note that despite the existence of the Superior Council, both the Governor-General and the Intendant wielded exceptional individual power over the colony at all times. As one historian noted, by the beginning of the 18th century, the powers of the Council were being slowly eroded and converted into more of a closely supervised tribunal than an autonomous governing body. That Supervision, being referred to, was the supervision of the council by the governor-general and intendant. Now, what I've just told you is simply a Cole's notes on the general governing structure of the colony. Below the council, there were lower courts and a variety of officials and bureaucrats who operated on behalf of the government. But our focus today is specifically on how this governing structure sought to enforce law and order in the colony. The first thing to understand about enforcing law and order is that it was done differently in the cities than it was in the countryside. We'll talk about this in more detail in a bit, but note that this distinction between urban and rural is quite important as well. The other thing that we need to keep in mind is the fact that New France is and was a heavily militarized colony. In almost all situations, military priorities always took precedence, be it funding or in terms of civil liberties or decisions about the colony's direction. The reasons being, of course, was that New France was often at war 
For most of the 17th century, the colony had been dealing with an extremely well-organized enemy in the Five Nations Iroquois. And by the end of the 17th century, it was dealing with a rising British imperial power that led to a series of wars stretching across the globe and were, of course, fought in the colonies of the Americas. So New France was almost perpetually in a state of war, or at least a state of war readiness for most of the 17th and 18th centuries. And this, of course, affected the way the colony oversaw the issue of law and order. Now, generally speaking, the intendant was responsible for this facet of the colony. But even though he was the colony's financial manager, he more closely represented a military intendant, as so much of his budgetary concerns revolved around military spending and military needs. As an example, a significant amount of the taxation levied against New France's population was military-based. Now, this wasn't just taxation in the form of cash, but it also included militia duty and a requirement to help construct forts or roadways, this labor in lieu of direct taxation was known as the corvée. It also even included the billeting of soldiers and, of course, requisitions such as animals, carts, grain, etc. during times of war. At times, then, New France looked less like a colony being governed by a political administration, but more a large military garrison commanded by the governor general and the intendant. So what does this look like when we're talking about policing in the urban centers? Well, the three key urban centers in the colony were Quebec, Montreal, and Trois-Rivières. For several decades leading up to New France being incorporated as a royal colony, these towns had assemblies of their own, but these were abolished in 1673, so 10 years after this incorporation. These towns also had lieutenant governors, the person responsible for running the town and its outlying parishes. However, the three towns were under the jurisdiction of the central authority, the governor general and the intendant, who then appointed magistrates to administer law and order within the towns and their surrounding parishes. At the same time, officials were appointed by the lieutenant governors to administer over the same areas. Finally, you also had military authorities within each town who were responsible for the local garrison. These officers carried significant influence in terms of town matters, including the enforcement of law and order. Overall, this meant confusing, overlapping, and sometimes even competing layers of officials responsible for town administration. But because the intendant was responsible for policing the colony, and held such significant power, it was often the magistrates appointed by him directly that were ultimately in charge of law and order in the urban space. Now, the entity that was responsible for officially carrying out police duties was known as the marshalsea. This was effectively a military body that was responsible primarily for tracking down deserters or carrying out punitive campaigns against brigands. But the marshalsea was often quite small in staff and found itself taking care of relatively minor cases. For instance, in Montreal in 1711, the marshalsea consisted of only four people, 
And these people were supposedly expected to be primarily responsible for arresting indigenous people caught drinking. Now, the group that ended up becoming more responsible for maintaining law and order in the towns and the parishes closest to the towns was, surprise, surprise, the military. When magistrates set out to make arrests or seize property or even serve a court summons, they were often accompanied by both the marshalsea and regular soldiers from the local garrison. Sometimes, if local civilians resisted the magistrate's orders, which happened not infrequently, the officer in charge of the escort would simply arrest the civilians, turning what was a civil matter into a military one. It's no surprise that in New France, the military was absolutely essential to defending the colony because of the frequency of war. Thus, the military held authority over the population. And it certainly did overextend itself from time to time. For instance, in Montreal one year, the Montreal sought to use the marketplace as a parade ground and effectively harassed and intimidated civilians till they cleared out of the long-used area. Broadly speaking, however, the view by most senior officials was that any threat to public order was a potential threat to the security of the town, and thus law and order often fell under the purview of military concerns. Now, there were also town militias, i.e. part-time soldiers drawn from the civilian population, who supplemented the ranks of the local garrison, and these men could be used to enforce law and order as well. The size of these militias varied. In Montreal, the militia was as small as 30 men, or as large as 110 at different times. Trois-Rivières, with a smaller population, had a smaller militia, and Quebec, with the largest of the urban populations, had a slightly larger one. The militia were technically responsible for the town artillery, though the quality and frequency of training varied according to place and time. The officers were generally drawn from the well-to-do merchants of town, with the command of the militia often given to a well-respected professional who straddled the social divide between the nobility and the commoners. Certainly, being an officer in the militia carried some social prestige, and officers were not required to billet soldiers during times of war, but the historical records show very little other advantages. Yet it is clear that prominent townspeople competed for these positions, so the social status must have been important in some capacity. The rank and file of the town militia were a mixture of people from different backgrounds. They included landlords, heads of households, tenants, young laborers in town for seasonal work, apprentices, merchants, tradesmen, and even indentured servants. In general, not too much is known about the role the militia played in urban life. During times of war, the militia might take up posts as night watchmen or gatekeepers, but during times of peace, these jobs were relegated back to the regulars. The militia sometimes helped with policing, supporting arrests, or even patrolling the town, but again, this was more often the work of regulars. In general, the militia seems to have had a marginal role in the urban community, and while it may have served a social function for commoners, frankly played little role in the maintenance of law and order. 
Now things were much different in the countryside, and we're going to find out about this after the break. Curious Canadian history. We'll be back after the break. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Folks, if you're looking for ad-free content from Curious Canadian History, look no further. Sign up to Patreon today. All you need to do is donate one or two bucks to the podcast via Patreon, and you can access all of our episodes for free without any advertisement or sponsorship content. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Just search for Curious Canadian History and sign up today. You also get a lot of little fun bonus features from yours truly. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. Now, before we dive into the countryside, let's first do a quick overview of the basic hierarchy of rural New France. Effectively, the land of New France was divided up into seigneuries. These were large landholding estates, usually controlled by a seigneur, a landholder, or by the church. Living on the land and working it were the censitaires, the peasants, more commonly known to history as the habitants. Now, this seigneurial system was not as neat and tidy as I make it out to be here, but for the purposes of today, this gives us a sense of land ownership in the countryside. The seigneurs owned the land, the habitants worked it. Now, unlike in the cities where there were overlapping jurisdictions regarding the maintenance of law and order, in the countryside, it was exclusively the responsibility of the intendant, and thus, any officials appointed by the attendant. Now, this isn't to say that the seigneurs did not have a say in justice on their land or church officials for that matter. Many seigneurs and church officials were often appointed by the intendant to deliver justice, the elites working together, but the responsibility for it all lay almost solely at the feet of the intendant and thus his appointed delegates. What's interesting is in the countryside, unlike the city, the militia played an extremely important role in maintaining law and order. Militia captains in particular were important figures of justice in the rural communities. These captains were responsible for publishing any sort of ordinances issued by the crown, responsible for enforcing justice, for carrying out court orders, and in turn, the militia under the command of the captain became effectively the police force of rural New France. Now, the militia was drawn primarily from the habitant population, and thus, the militia offered unique social leverage to the local habitants of a community, parish, or seigneury. They could, quote-unquote, negotiate the application of justice by elites towards commoners because they were the ones heavily responsible for enforcing it. Rural militias varied according to the size of the community. 
Effectively, once a community or parish had about 30 families, a captain was appointed with a lieutenant as his second in command, and then the supporting ranks to fill out the company's muster. As the size of a settlement grew, so too did the militia companies. By 1750, for instance, the Seigneury of La Prairie, which had about 300 families, had on paper six militia companies, two militia captains, and even a major, that's a rank higher than captain, who was responsible for all of the militia companies in the community. Militia captains were usually chosen from some of the well-to-do families, and these were often also some of the more established habitant families in the community. Roughly 75% of all militia officers came from this group. Captains were often appointed on the recommendation of the local priest or seigneur, and over time, the role of the militia captains became hereditary. Now, Military experience was, surprisingly, rarely a key piece of criteria for selecting militia captains. In fact, being an officer in the militia was not, as some historians have postulated, a route to nobility or even a way into the regular forces. Many militia captains were over 50 years old, with some even in their mid-70s. This then makes it easier to understand why, during times of war, Militia officers were not responsible for training the militia. This was left to younger, more able, regular officers. In many ways, what marked someone for appointment as a militia officer was wisdom and respect within the community itself. So what specifically were the militia captains tasked with doing? One of the most pressing tasks was to oversee work on the seigneury, and enforce the corvée, i.e. the requirement to do labor on the seigneurial land as a form of taxation. So, for instance, one of the most pressing demands was the creation and maintenance of roadways. Habitants would be required to build and maintain sections of roadways, usually the sections running through their own land. It was the militia captain who would first ensure that every peasant in the community was contributing their required bit of labor, while also overseeing the project as a whole, along with a Rhodes superintendent. There was always, of course, tension surrounding this. Even after construction, Rhodes needed constant repair, and this labor often conflicted with the demands of agriculture. Farmers needed to return to work their fields. As well, the requirement of labor never fell evenly across the various families in the community. Some habitants found themselves being required to do far more work than others. And of course, if one failed to help with their portion, the whole system fell apart as the road would effectively end at the boundaries between one person's land and the other. At the same time, some habitants could only offer themselves for work or perhaps one or two sons, while others had large families, equaling many sons, or were even wealthy enough to hire labor to help with the construction. This again challenged the equitable distribution of the required labor. To top it all off, the seigneur himself was often exempt from having to contribute money or labor to the construction of roads on parts of the seigneury that were not yet settled. Effectively, the wealthiest person in the community contribute little 
to the construction of roads through his land. The militia captain had to navigate all of this. He was not only responsible for making sure everyone was doing their bit to build and maintain the roadways in all seasons, mind you, but he also was responsible for reporting violators and collecting fines if issued. It wasn't just the roads, though. The militia captain had other duties. He was responsible for reporting on people who sold liquor without a permit, held unauthorized assemblies, sold salt or wheat above the official set price, and even reporting on those who taught children without approval from the local church officials. Now, the militia, like the marshalsea in the city, was also entrusted with the role of tracking down military deserters and indentured servants who had fled their places of work. The militia would also be called out to escort officials serving court documents, a process that could include seizures or expulsions, and for obvious reasons risked violent reactions. You might be asking yourself, if the militia captain was drawn from the ranks of the peasants, how trustworthy was he in carrying out his duties when it was against other peasant families from his community? Well, the answer was that for government officials, the militia captains may have been useful, but they were never fully trusted. Certainly, a militia captain had a responsibility to enforce royal authority, but at the same time, he was enforcing this authority against family members, friends, and fellow habitants. It's not clear how often this line blurred or where militia captains specifically refused or abrogated their authority. But it is certainly clear that royal officials were widely mistrusting of the militia captains, while at the same time still using them as often as possible. Another aspect of the militia's role was, of course, in times of war. When war was declared, and it was declared often, militia captains were responsible for the muster, effectively ensuring that local eligible men were called up to participate in whatever campaign or operation they were needed for. At the same time, militia captains were in charge of assigning housing to soldiers passing through, billeting, and organizing labor and materials for the construction of fortifications. Much like roadwork, this was also considered part of the corvée. It is interesting to note that the militia captains worked for free. There was no salary for this position. Certainly, it was clear that social prestige came with the rank, for instance, a saved seat in the pews in the local church, and there were small bonuses like not having to billet soldiers. But in general, there was no serious economic advantages from the job itself. What is clear is that whomever was the militia captain must have been in an advantageous economic position already to be able to devote himself to the extensive and onerous duties of the militia captain, as opposed, of course, to having to be focused on his land's agricultural needs. Social recognition seemed to be the most important reward. Well-off habitants, who thus became leaders within their communities. At the end of the day, the militia captain was very much a social strategist. He had to act as a mediator between local factions, not just within the community, but crossing social barriers. 
enforcing royal authority while also maintaining his own standing amongst the local habitant population from which he came. He could not simply be a pawn of the intendant, for this might lead him to break the unspoken rules of the community he came from. At the same time, appointing a militia captain from the ranks of the habitant population gave the community some sense of autonomy, a method by which they could navigate the complex social, political, and economic relationships with the church and the land-holding elites. In many ways, the militia companies and the captains that ran them were opportunities for agency, for negotiation, for even implementing change, albeit relative and gradual. By examining the role of the militia, militia captains, and the enforcement of law and order in both countryside and city, we are given a window into the complex realities of life in New France. It was a colony controlled heavily from the center, but one that also had many layers of authority, layers often overlapping with each other. Within those layers, opportunities existed for commoners and elites alike to define their roles in society. All the while that these changing definitions were taking place, New France was continually facing the constant threat and reality of war during a period of intense rivalry with indigenous and European enemies. The community needed to find a way to police itself, rooted in the fear that a breakdown in law and order could very well lead to the enemy not just at the gates, but breaking right through them. I want to thank you all for listening today. Don't forget, you can find me on Twitter at Doc Boris. That's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Patreon. And you can find us on all podcast listening devices. And please do not hesitate to write and leave a comment. We love to hear from you. I'm David Boris. Stay curious, friends.